Okay, we please stand with me and turn to Matthew chapter 12, read verses 22 to 30 as our New Testament reading. In tonight's sermon text, we're going to see Gideon very upset at two uh, small cities who decide not to help him and his army as they follow up their victory against the Midianites. And uh, We're going to try to understand in a, in a nuanced way um, the severe consequences that he brings upon those towns in response. It's a mixed sort of uh, situation where there are going to be some ambiguities. But with the Lord Jesus, he is able to speak with the authority of absolute right. Um, as the king overall, when he says that we, there, there is no opportunity for neutrality, we must either be on his side or side of the devil. Let's read what Jesus says here in Matthew 12. First, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would please open our hearts to understand and believe and obey uh, your word as you're about to Uh, Present it to us as it's read and preached in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 12, 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. All right. I'm going to read again verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And with that in our minds, let's turn to Judges 7. We'll start at verse 24, and we'll read on through chapter 8, verse 21. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth-barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth-barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zaeb, They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zaeb they killed at the winepress of Zaeb. Then they pursued Midian 
and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zaeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zaeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmana, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmana already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmana into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now, Zeba and Zalmana were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbeha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmanah fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmanah, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heretz, and he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmanah, about whom you taunted me, saying, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmanah already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmanah, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jather, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmanah said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmanah, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Amen. You may be seated. Very last line of the book of Judges says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Now, from that, you might conclude that the point of the book is to show how much Israel needs a king to keep everybody in line, to make sure that the nation follows the Lord. Um, The reality is more complicated than that. Kingship is a significant theme in Judges, and it's a theme that starts to become much more prominent here in the story of Gideon and then his son Abimelech. Uh, But in their stories, what you see is that Israel's desire for a king is actually a problem. Um, Next time we're going to see Gideon turn down the official title of king, but why do the people offer him that title, that crown, in the first place? Well, The reason is because he's already been doing king-like things. And in those king-like things, there's some uh, mixture, some ambiguity of, is this a good thing or a bad thing for Israel? Now, it's interesting how the historian doesn't give us a lot of explicit value judgments in this chapter on whether what Gideon, or at least in this, in this part of the chapter, uh, about whether what Gideon is doing is good or bad. And so what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to weigh Gideon's actions. We're going to compare them with other parts of Israel's history. We're kind of going to try to think, why is this part of the story here? It's not here just to give us a moral example of, is Gideon good or bad, and should you imitate him or not? What we want to ask is, what is the Lord teaching Israel about themselves, about their leaders, and about their relationship with him through the career of Gideon? This very successful, but ultimately very disappointing, king-like judge. That's who Gideon is. So in the first section of tonight's passage, we're going to see his king-like diplomacy. Uh, Chapter 7, 24 through 8, verse 3. Next, we're going to see Gideon acting with a king-like severity, verses 4 to 17. And finally, we'll witness his king-like judgment in verses 18 to 21 um, against the Midianite kings. So first, Gideon's king-like diplomacy. Um, Just recently, the kids and I were reading in 1 Samuel about King Saul. And his first great victory against the Ammonites. And if you remember the story of Saul, a little bit before that victory, um, uh, most of the people were very excited for him to become king. But there were a few people who didn't like him. Um, and so uh, he's, been, he's been crowned, and then he's won this great victory. And after Saul uh, beats up on the Ammonites, and his, his popularity is skyrocketing in Israel, everybody loves their new king, Uh, The people say to Samuel after this great victory, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. And Saul says, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. King David says something similar in 2 Samuel 19 after he's defeated Absalom. And there's that spirit of clemency um, of uh, wanting to bring Israel together after a time of victory that I think bears some resemblance to what Gideon does here as he answers Ephraim um, at the beginning of chapter of chapter 8. Um, so Gideon had called on, on Ephraim to help him in the kind of mopping up operation after, after he had uh, beaten Midian. Uh, but in chapter 8, Ephraim's kind of upset that he didn't call on them in the first place to take part in the, in the big victory. 
Um, they accused him fiercely, it says. Of course, the Lord had told Gideon, we have more than enough men. But Ephraim's wondering, why didn't you call us out when you called these other tribes, Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali and Manasseh? Why didn't you call Ephraim too? And they've taken offense at this. What you have to understand is this is a precarious moment for Gideon as a leader. Which way is he going to go? See, now is a time that Israel needs to be united. They need to not be divided against it. Israel needs not be divided against itself. And so Gideon's response here, depending on what he says, um, can either bring Israel together or tear Israel apart. Um, And for a counterexample, you can look at the story of Jephthah in chapter 12, as uh, Kalos and Younger points this out, uh, commentator Ephraim confronts Jephthah in a very similar way, very parallel circumstances, but Jephthah responds in a different way. He responds very defiantly. He ends up starting a civil war with Ephraim, uh, which he wins, but he kills thousands of Ephraimites in the process. Is that what an Israelite leader is supposed to do? Is he supposed to start a civil war that ends up in the deaths of thousands of Israelites? No. Now, some people think um, Gideon's actually not acting virtuously here. He's, he's acting by necessity. They think um, when you compare this with what happens later with Sukkoth and Penuel, those were little cities that Gideon felt like he could handle. Ephraim is this huge tribe. Gideon has this very small army. He knows he's not going to be able to stand up to them forcibly, and so he just appeases them. Um, because he has to. That's, that's one take of some of the commentators. And, and they would say, well, it's in his interactions with Sukkoth and Penuel that you see the real Gideon, what, what, what he does when he has the upper hand. Uh, one writer calls him a, a bully at that point. And I'm, I'm not certain that those commentators are wrong. I'm also not certain that they're right. Or I'm, 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 I am certain that that's not the main point. Um, I do think that we're supposed to see something commendable in this first encounter encounter with the Ephraimites. Um, Gideon is giving, as another writer puts it, that soft answer that turns away wrath uh, that Proverbs 15, verse 1, speaks of. This is an example of Gideon not insisting on his own preeminence and power. Instead, he's he's kind of self-deprecating here. Compared to you... I'm not all that great. What have I done compared to what you've... Look look at you guys. You guys have just conquered Oreb and Zaeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And so if we read it very generously towards Gideon, we, we could at least hope that Gideon is, in some sense, recognizing here, acknowledging that his defeat of Midian was not his own doing, that it was God's doing, Right? There, I think there is a humility here in Gideon's answer. He doesn't have any reason to assert himself against Ephraim, to kind of arrogate, to make himself seem big against Ephraim, to say, I'm better than you are. Instead, because he knows the victory came from God in the first place, he is free then to say, you know what? I, I, don't, I don't have to have first place here. I, I do not have to be uh, insisting on my own um, kind of status as a leader. I am happy to see the Lord at work wherever he is going to be at work and through whomever he wants to use, even if it's not me. Um, That's a hard attitude for us to have sometimes. 
But that kind of attitude, that self-effacing attitude that is happy to see others succeed, happy to see the Lord use others to win his victories, that is the kind of attitude, that's the kind of answer in this case that makes for peace. Um, again, that's reading this in a way that's pretty generous towards Gideon, guessing at his what's going on in his heart um, in the best light possible. And I think that's a plausible way to read it. Um, let's take the more cynical view. and Let's suppose this is just a tactical move for Gideon. Suppose he didn't have any other choice. Um, suppose, yeah, he does it just because he knows Ephraim's stronger and he can't beat them. Well, the result is the same either way. The result is still that Ephraim's anger subsides. And unlike in Jephthah's case, you don't have a civil war break out. And that surely is a good thing. And, and so I think really the point is whatever his motives, and we have to be careful trying to uh, get into the psychology of biblical characters when the text doesn't give us that insight. Whatever his heart motives here, good or bad, what is clear is that Gideon is acting in a king-like way. That's what's absolutely clear. Gideon is displaying the kind of leadership that brings Israel together in the way that a king would do and that some of Israel's later great kings do. Okay? Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think we generally want to say that preventing civil war in Israel is a good thing. And, and, um, I, and, and, and I'm not sure that the historian is trying to paint Gideon as as personally, as an individual, good or righteous, so much as he's trying to paint Gideon as king-like. That's the point. He's beginning this sketch of king-like attributes, king-like actions. And to a certain extent, I think the historian is purposely kind of withholding judgment on, uh, putting a value judgment on Gideon's actions until later, until later when we see how Gideon uses that king-like power that he's gaining. Then there will be some problems. But we haven't gotten there yet. Right now we want to be reserving judgment, just thinking about this sketch. How is Gideon being shown to be king-like? Verses 4 to 17 continue sketching that picture. Except now, instead of a king-like diplomacy appeasing his enemies, you see a different side of how a king acts, a king-like severity. Uh, and again, I want to encourage you not to approach this first in terms of is this good or bad or did Gideon do the right or wrong thing. We want to be asking, how does this fill out the sketch of Gideon uh, as having these king-like characteristics? Good king-like or bad king-like remains to be seen. Okay, So um, what Gideon's doing is he's trying to follow up his victories, trying to chase down what's left of the Midianite army. But his men, of course, are exhausted. Who knows when they last ate, when they last rested. Uh, and so Gideon asks these two towns, Sukkoth and Penuel, Penuel, to give them something to eat. It reminds me of King David when he goes to the priests at Nob, for Samuel 21. And in that case, uh, David receives the help he asks for. But remember what ends up happening to those priests at Nob. Remember how King Saul ends up having them all killed because he's so upset that they helped David. When you think of that story, it may give you a little more sympathy uh, with these two towns. It's very realistic what they're saying. There's a very realistic threat when they, when they say, uh, Gideon, if we help you, but you lose, what's going to happen to us? The Midianites are going to turn around. 
once they're finished whooping up on you, they're going to come whoop up on us. And um, so you can understand at least their reluctance to help Gideon when he has this very small army and the ultimate outcome is, um, at least from a human point of view, very much in question. To that, Gideon responds, listen, you, you simply cannot play both sides in this war. You have to decide right now which side you're on. And if you're not on my side, then I'm going to count you as part of the enemy. That's the essence of what this uh, ultimatum that Gideon is setting before them. And sure enough, that is what Gideon does. He treats them as the enemy. After he's defeated the Midianites, he humiliates the leaders of one. He destroys the citadel of the other and puts its men to death. Very severe response. And again, before we evaluate those actions, kind of ethically, we need to notice here that Gideon is assuming a great deal of authority over Sukkoth and Penuel. He's acting like he has the power and the right to render judgment against entire cities of Israel and to take it upon himself to execute Israelite citizens who um, don't submit to his leadership. See, he's acting with a king-like severity. So let's go on to the next step and at least take some steps towards evaluating what Gideon's just done. We need to be cautious here because, again, the historian doesn't give us an inspired value judgment on how he punishes these cities. Um, A lot of modern commentators take for granted that what Gideon does here is is just horrifying and barbaric. Um, We have to be a little cautious that that gut reaction to the severity may reflect... Uh, more modern sensibilities than an ancient Israelite reader would have recognized or shared in reading this in a time when the authority of kings was not viewed with such suspicion as it is in modern times. I think the better approach to evaluating this is, is to look at it in terms of the themes of judges. How, does, how, does, how do these actions, um, this retaliation against these cities, how does that relate to the big picture trajectory of the book, the flow of the book of Judges. Judges ends up, think about where Judges ends. Judges is going to end in a terrible debacle uh, where Israel has stopped fighting the Canaanites around them, and instead they've started fighting each other and treating each other like Canaanites. Why is that? Well, it's partly because Israel has started acting like Canaanites. Everything has been turned upside down from the way it's supposed to be. That's the way the book ends. That's the way the place we're going. And I think what's happening here in chapter 8 is we're getting a little foretaste of where the book is going to end up. Remember that the um, that image of Judges we talked about as a downward spiral for Israel. Now, we talked about Jephthah earlier and how he starts a civil war with Ephraim. Gideon doesn't do that. Why? Because we're not quite that far down on the spiral yet. Jephthah is lower down. Things are worse when you get to Jephthah. Here, Gideon avoids that crisis. But he does wage a civil war against these two small cities. It's like that internal conflict in Israel is starting to take place just on a smaller scale. It's the same theme. It just hasn't reached yet the same level of severity and 
just wheels coming off that we see with Jephthah, and then further down the spiral later in the book. But we do need to see this as part of that trajectory, this whole theme of Israel fighting against Israel instead of fighting against the Canaanites. I think we should also contrast it with something higher up on the spiral. Where have we descended from to get to this point? When were things different? Here we can think back to uh, Deborah and Barak. Set side by side, Gideon's victory over Midian and the victory over Sisera with Deborah and Barak from chapter 4. You've got those two battles in mind, those two great victories that God gives to Israel. Now let's compare the aftermath of those two battles. What happens in the aftermath of the victory over Sisera? Well, in chapter 5, you get that wonderful song of Deborah and Barak, which begins that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. The leaders took the lead, the people offered themselves willingly. And that's a great description of the ideal way that holy warfare in Israel is supposed to happen. The leaders leading and the people offering themselves willingly. That is not what has transpired in the aftermath of Gideon's victory. Sukkoth and Penuel do not offer themselves willingly, do they? And so what should have been a glorious, life-giving partnership, sharing in victory for the glory of God, well, now there's this instead. There's this reluctance, this self-preservation, and then in response to that, there's bloodshed. Were Sukkoth and Penuel wrong to withhold their help from Gideon? I think probably so. It doesn't follow that ideal that you see in the Song of Deborah. You could also ask, was Gideon overly harsh in his response? And again, I think the answer is probably so. And so as we've seen so often, you can't just divide the story up into black hats and white hats, good guys and bad guys. It just isn't structured that way. The reason the story is here is to show us another loop in the spiral. We've descended from the way things were with Deborah and Barak. Lower down, things are not going as well. And yet, it's not quite as bad as it will be later. And in fact, just in the next chapter, we're going to reach a much lower low under Abimelech. Okay. Now, there's one last scene to consider here. That's the execution of Zeba and Zalmana. Uh, Here, once again, you see Gideon exercising a king-like function in executing these defeated foes. Um, Not that he's actually king, or not even that you have to be a king in order to do this. Um, One writer points out there's a somewhat similar scene in Joshua chapter 10, where it's Joshua who is presiding over the execution of five captured Amorite Amorite kings in that case. And so more broadly, you could say Gideon simply fulfilling his duty as a commander of the armies of the Lord as the Lord's appointed representative who's carrying out judgment on the Lord's defeated enemies. But when you take this together with the other actions of Gideon in the chapter, 
again, it's filling out that sketch, that sketch of Gideon becoming more and more king-like, emerging as this king-like figure. And to me, what seals that interpretation is what Ziba and Zalman actually say to Gideon when he asked them, where are the men you killed at Tabor? And they answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled a king. Commentators, I think uh, you could argue, get a little bogged down in the weeds here. But again, they try to peer into Gideon's motivations. So they think, well, maybe this is recoloring the whole story. Maybe this is showing that the whole fight against Midian has really just been a personal blood feud the whole time. He's just upset that these kings killed his brothers, and so that's why he's been fighting. I don't, I don't think that's what's going on. Now, Gideon is clearly acting at the Lord's command in fighting Midian. The war, in principle, was justified, and the execution of these kings, in principle, was justified. The point, I think, of the historian reporting this whole scene is for us to hear these kings tell Gideon to hear from their mouths that Gideon looks like a king. As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. That's what we're learning about Gideon. He is a king-like figure that's emerging. Now, next time we're going to see what happens when the people of Israel try to actually make Gideon's kingship official, and they actually try to crown him, and Gideon technically refuses, spoiler alert, but um, later we'll see his son um, not refuse. Uh, with very tragic things to follow. But for now, what we're left with at this point in the story of Gideon is a very foreboding sense that although the big bad enemy Midian has been defeated, Israel's leadership situation is just not quite right. Judges as a whole leaves us longing for a leader who will put that foreboding feeling to rest once and for all. In Gideon, we are seeing a king-like figure emerge, but as he emerges, the narrative invites us to think, this might not be such a good thing for Israel. There is so much potential for so many things to go wrong as this one man begins to accumulate this power and status. And I think it is in that way that judges as a whole, and this chapter in particular, directs us to look forward with gratitude and relief, really, to the coming of King Jesus. The Lord Jesus is that leader that God's people actually need. A king who leads, by the way, with, with gentleness and humility, where that is called for, and also with severity, where that is called for. See, that's the key about a king. A good king knows when to be gentle and when to be severe. The Lord Jesus is is so compassionate and tender with sinners who need his help and his healing. But he is equally stern and relentless and ruthless against rebels who refuse his salvation and who resist his rule. See what Christ does. He he carries out that kingly office with perfect wisdom and perfect justice all the time. We're never quite sure with Gideon whether he's doing the right thing exactly. 
you always get this sense that there are maybe some mixed motives and that there are definitely some mixed outcomes from Gideon's leadership. But you see, with the reign of Jesus, there's never any question that we can trust him because we know that he is just and he is righteous and that he is good and gracious in everything he does. We can know that because Jesus did something that Gideon never did. When he laid down his life for us, that's something you never see Gideon do, really sacrificing himself for Israel. But let's think about this. When we were rebels against Christ's rule, Gideon sees these rebels at Sukkoth and Penuel, and um, you see how he responds to them. Think about when we were rebels. How did the Lord Jesus treat us? And you realize Jesus had every right to treat us with harshness and vengeance. He had every right to treat us the way that Gideon treated these two cities. That is the right that a king has over rebels. But Jesus didn't do that. Instead, what did Jesus do? He took our punishment upon himself. Think about that scourging with the thorns and briars that Gideon gave the men of Sukkoth. I think that it's not a stretch for that to remind us of Christ's scourging and the thorns that crowned his head. See, that is a sketch we get in the Gospels of a very different king. And that is our king. A king who would endure all of those things for you and in your place, rather than lashing out in vengeance and destruction so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be restored and enjoy a forever life with him in his presence. See, that is why you can trust your king. It was not like Gideon. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it's hard reading the book of Judges and seeing so many things go so wrong. It's hard the way it's not always clear even whether some of the characters are making the right choices or doing things for the right reasons. Because, Lord, these are sinful men in a sinful nation surrounded by sinful enemies. And there's so much evil, so much brokenness, so much darkness that just seems to keep deepening. Lord, we're so thankful for the way this book points us to the Lord Jesus and his light that is broken into that darkness of this world and of our own experience as sinners and sufferers. We thank you that the Lord Jesus has entered into our suffering, that he has responded to our sin and rebellion with compassion and with mercy and grace. He has taken our punishment upon himself, and that therefore we can trust him and entrust ourselves to him. And Lord, we love him. We're so thankful for such a great Savior and King that you have given to us. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.